0: Well, good morning, Compass Bible Church. It's great to be with you. It's an honor uh, to be able to open up God's word and preach it to you this morning. Uh, But this is my last chance to do that as one of the pastors here at Compass Bible Church, Aliso uh, Viejo. So more than just thinking about today, it really has been an honor to serve this church for the last nine years. Uh, Being a pastor here, that's just been Amazing. But an incredible privilege to, to serve here under the leadership of, of Pastor Mike and even just to fill in this uh, pulpit as, that he preaches in every week and a wonderful uh, joy to serve alongside the rest of the, the pastoral team here at the church. We'll never uh, forget that. And these last couple of weeks have taken some time off with my family. We've been trying to pack in a lot of last Southern California things, lots of trips to the beach and uh, stuff like that before we head out of state at the end of the month. Uh, but as we think back on our time here in Southern California, what we're going to miss most is definitely not the beach. It's going to be you guys, the people of Compass Bible Church, who have really made being here a joy. And it's uh, s- sad to go and leave so many of you, but the exciting thing is, is that while we might be leaving Compass Bible Church, Aliso Viejo, we're leaving to go plant another Compass Bible Church uh, up in the Boise, Idaho area. <clears throat> We'll be just outside of Boise, so the the broader area, including Boise, is known as the Treasure Valley. So Compass Bible Church, Treasure Valley, we'll be out there at the end of the month, building up to launching early uh, next year. We can't wait for that. I firmly believe that what our nation needs more than anything else is more solid Bible teaching churches. And so I'm excited not just to plant a church, but another Compass Bible Church that shares the same distinctives and doctrine as this church Right now, and even by the end of next month, there will be close to 15 other families that have made the move from Orange County up to the Treasure Valley, uh, and we'll be getting rolling, and that is so exciting. But as I prepare to leave, the message that I want to leave all of us with is that no matter where you are, whether you're moving to be a part of a church plant, or like most of you, whether you're just here and you're a part of a Compass Bible Church of El Viejo, or even if you're just visiting this morning. The reality is that God has a call on the life of every single one of us. He's calling all of us to serve him. He's calling all of us to be active participants in the work of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. I think we would all agree that volunteers are a good thing. Nobody's going to disagree with that. Even just Think about this week, or the holy fire that's been raging up there in the mountains all week. I know even some people from this church have volunteered uh, to go up and help fight the fire. Or and some of you have volunteered. You're not fighting any fires, but hey, I will volunteer to bring some supplies, do whatever I can do to help make sure that they have all that they need, those brave people who are fighting these fires. But here's the thing, most of us, haven't done that. Uh, most of us have done nothing. Now, it's not that we're anti volunteering. None of us are sitting back and saying, Oh, I don't know why people would volunteer to go help. That's, that's wrong. That's not right. No, we're all for it. But we look at the situation and say, Well, we've got some paid professionals who really know what they're doing out there fighting this dangerous fire. And then we've got some people and they must have a lot of spare time uh, and they're giving some of that to go out there and uh, fight this fire and I, I'm supporting it. Maybe I'll put up you know, a post on Facebook saying I'm praying for all the brave men and women out there fighting the, the, the fire but that's all that you're doing and, and that for many of us, that's really all that you can do if all several hundred of us went and said, hey, we, we wanna help fight the fire. they probably say, yeah, yeah, we don't need all of you but the problem is when that mindset starts to be how we think about church, how we think about ministry, when we start thinking, well, we got these paid professionals, the staff of the church, they they do all the, the heavy lifting, they're trained, they know what they're doing, and then we've got the people that They've got lots of spare time, so they volunteer to help out with what the church is doing, and I, I'm for all of that. I'm not against the church, and every once in a while, I'll get on Facebook and make a post saying, hey, I'm praying for you know, all the people serving at my church at this event, but you think of yourselves as on the sidelines. That's a big problem, and what I want us to understand is why that's a problem is, is deeper even than we might think. It's not just a big problem because, hey, we've got all kinds of needs and we need more people to to step it up and there's more that we could do to reach our community with more people actively engaged. That's true, but that's not the big reason. It's also uh, true that God has called us to this and we should be faithful. And if we're not actively serving the cause of the gospel, we're not being faithful. That's true as well. But the problem is still even deeper than that. If we're not actively engaged in the cause of ministry, and the cause of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, it reveals that we don't even understand who God is. It it reveals that we also don't even understand how great it is, even that there is a message of forgiveness of sins that is available through Jesus Christ if we're not actively engaged, what we're we're seeing is that we don't understand the most basic things about who God is and about what he has done for us. Today, we're going to look at a well-known passage of scripture where the prophet Isaiah says to God, here I am, send me. And what I want all of us to understand is that is a statement, not just for church planners or people moving to Idaho to be a part of a church planning team. It's not just a statement for foreign missionaries, people going to the ends of the earth. Here I am, send me, is a statement for every single Christian. Everybody who knows who God is, everybody who understands what God has done for us through the good news of Jesus Christ should be saying, here I am, God, send me. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open up to Isaiah chapter 6. What we see in this chapter is the record of when God called the prophet Isaiah into service. When God called him in to ministry. And we're going to do is we're going to break it down into just four sections, and we're just going to work through them one at a time. So as you get to Isaiah chapter six, we just want to start with verses one through four. Isaiah six, one through four. Let me read those for us. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. was filled with smoke. Here at Compass Bible Church, we have eight distinctives of our church. And distinctive number three is this. We seek to maintain a high view of God. Now, if you were to hop on our church website and go to where those eight distinctives are listed, Pastor Mike has written a short description of each one. And I want to read to you what it says there under that third distinctive, we seek to maintain a high view of God. It says, in a day when many have attempted to reduce God to be their spiritual therapist, it is important for us to remember that God, our creator, is the highly exalted, transcendent king of all things. We cannot afford to think less of God than he really is. We dare not respond to him as merely our comfortable friend and fail to worship him as our sovereign Lord. Point number one this morning, I want all of you to heighten your awe for the king. Heighten your awe for the king. And I can't think of a better way for us to do that than for us to really look at what is going on in these four verses It begins, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, King Uzziah was a significant king and he had been the king of Israel for over 50 years at this point. That's a a long time to have somebody leading a nation. And even if you think about it, it's been a little over 50 years since the United States of America experienced the death of a president in office. The assassination of John F. Kennedy. And those of you that were alive at the time, remember how big of a deal that was. But m- most of you don't remember that. Y- you weren't around when it happened. And just like that, most people in Israel had never lived a day in their lives that King Uzziah had not been king. That's a powerful reminder that people, even the mightiest people, they come and go. And by contrast, God is always there. That before you were born, before your father was born, before your father's father was born, before Adam and Eve were created, God was. And give it a 100 years, should the Lord, uh, Terry, every single one of us in this room will be gone. But God will still be. He is there, and he's not just there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. God is the king. God is sovereign, he is absolutely in control. And for us, as Bible-believing Christians, that's a reality that we must accept, that we must embrace, that we must never apologize for. Psalm 115, verse three says, our God sits in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God is in control. He does what he wants to do. And no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter who your boss is, no matter who the president is, no matter what crazy things you you see happening on the news, God is 100% in control. And even look how his throne is described. It's described as high, lifted up, God is not just a king. He is the king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And it says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Imagine that, just the the train of his robe flowing all over the the room there in the temple, filling the place up. Every once in a while, this room is, is used for weddings. I was married right here on this stage uh, imagine coming here for a wedding and and seeing the bride here on the stage and uh, observing the train of her wedding gown which often sometimes those are long it's a significant moment that's a the, the wedding dress is, it has even so much symbolic meaning it, it's a powerful thing but imagine that you came here and you, you saw the bride and the, the train of her dress came uh, around and all the way down the, the, the stairs that they put up when we do weddings here, and all the way down the aisle to the back of the room, and then it started curving all the way around the room, it started weaving in and out of the chairs. What would you think if you saw that? You would think, that's just a bit much. In fact, I bet you would look at that bride and you'd kind of be like, who does this person think they are? I mean, is this like the queen of England? What's going on? This isn't the royal wedding. How important do they think they are? But if you could see God on the throne, if you could see his robe filling the temple, you wouldn't think that was overdoing it at all. You would say that is exactly right. Our God is glorious. He reigns in majesty, And around God, verse 2, tells us that there's these creatures known as the seraphim. Seraphim, that's plural for seraph. We don't know a lot about these angelic creatures, but from what we can gather, from what we see in Scripture, is that even just that, that word seraph, these creatures are associated with fire and flames, So you've got these six-winged, fiery creatures there around the throne of God. What kind of magnificent sight just seeing one of them must have been. But notice how it describes their wings. They're only using two of them to fly. With two of them, they cover their feet. Why is that? We don't know exactly. The best suggestion I've heard is that feet symbolize their creatureliness, And they cover them as a sign of respect. But it also says, with two, they covered their face. That even these creatures would not dare to look fully at the glory and the face of God. Now, get this. These seraphim, they are not, like you and me, sinful creatures. They are not unclean in that way. But even still, they cover their faces. Before God. And I'm confident that if you could see one of these creatures, you would cover your face at them. You would say, Whoa, what is this fiery six winged creature before me? Yet these creatures from whom you would hide your face hide their face before a holy God sitting on his throne. And as they are there around the throne of God, it says, They call. One another, These majestic creatures calling to each other in unending song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What's the meaning of this song? And what's the meaning of this word holy? It's actually difficult to fully wrap our minds around what the word holy means, but the simplest way to understand the holiness of God is that he is set apart. And anything in scripture that we see referred to as holy, it means it's set apart apart. And that is true of God in the ultimate sense. God is set apart from us. Even just everything that there is in the universe fits into two categories. There are two types of things, created things and uncreated things. On the created things side of the scale, we've got you, we've got me, we've got the, the mountains, we've got the oceans, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that has been created. On the uncreated side of the scale, we have God and God alone. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Our God alone is uncreated. He is holy. And sometimes you might have to fill out a form and it asks you something about yourself and you look at all the options and say, none of these really work. But then there's a box at the bottom that says other, so you check that. That is the box that God always checks. He is other. He does not fit into neat categories that we can wrap our human minds around. And as you study the Bible and you look at this concept of holiness, one theme that consistently goes along with the idea of God being holy, it highlights his absolute moral purity. That God is holy and there is no trace of sin or uncleanness in him. That is who God is. And this holiness of God, in many ways, is his defining attribute this is what the seraphim are singing and it's the only attribute if you look at all of the bible that is like this raised to that third degree of repetition holy 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 that is who god is and they sing that the whole earth is full of his glory all of creation is crying out how majestic god is and i love how it says the whole earth all of it not just, hey, Yosemite is full of his glory. No, from the barren deserts to the depth of the sea, creation is full of wonders that point to a holy creator and king. And then you get to verse 4, as these creatures say, holy, 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 it says, and the foundations of the thresholds shook They shook not even at the voice of God, but at the voice of him who called. These creatures around the throne of God, even their voice is so powerful to make the temple shake, and the house was filled with smoke. Earth shaking, smoke filling, this guy, those are things Californians should be familiar with, right? Earthquakes, fires, in fact, sometimes we're a little too familiar with those things, that we kind of, oh, there's another fire, yawn, you know, another day in the life. But sometimes that fire gets a little closer to your home than you feel comfortable with. Every once in a while, your house starts shaking and it keeps going. And you know in those moments how unsettling that can be. Well, seeing this vision of God and God on the throne would be very unsettling. You understand why Scripture says things like in the Psalms, as it's calling people to worship, tremble before him all the earth. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. As we think about who this God is, in many ways, he is unsettling. He is not safe. He is holy. He is other. He is set apart. Now, let's be honest. This... The view of God isn't very popular in today's day and age. But what we see is it's, it's real, where we're just going right through the text of the Bible. And we could go to so many other passages that present God in this way. But the problem we come up with, it goes back to that uh, saying maybe many of you have heard, that God created man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. The idea being that man likes to think of God like himself, that left to our own devices, we end up thinking of God as a slightly better us, us without the imperfections and and, and sin, Uh, us just a little bit better. That's who we tend to think of God as. And that's why even I love the wording of that third distinctive, we seek to maintain a high view of God. None of us drift towards a high view of God. No, our culture, our flesh, everything is pulling us away from that to think of God like ourselves. If you've never read the classic book by A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy, I would encourage you to, to pick that up and to read that as soon as you can. But that book starts with this line, Tozer writes, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what's unfortunate is that too many people have the wrong thing come into their mind when they think about God. What comes into their mind is something that's much closer to who they are than to who God really is. And I hope you understand how true that statement that Tozer makes is, and I hope you see how relevant having this high view of God is. It will change your life. I would hope that this week, when you face temptation, to think that lustful thought or to say that angry word, you would feel the temple shaking. You would smell the smoke and these angelic creatures before you think about giving in to that sin. I would hope for those of you in the room that are married that this week when you're tempted to be frustrated with or disappointed with or bitter towards your spouse, that you would look past your imperfect spouse and see this God who is holy, holy, holy. And to remember that on Judgment Day, you're not gonna stand before your spouse. You're gonna stand before that God. And there's not gonna be any, well, they said or did, you know, those words won't come out of your mouth before a holy God. When the world gets crazy and things go sideways in your life this week and you're tempted to be anxious, I hope that you look and see The Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and are encouraged to trust Him. But the thing that I want us to see most this weekend is how this high view of God is directly connected to the statement that Isaiah is going to say later when he says, Here I am, send me. How are those things connected? Well, I don't have to imagine anything. I can just go right to the Great Commission. Familiar with the Great Commission? How does that start? Some of you right now, you're thinking in your minds, go therefore and make disciples. That's not how the Great Commission starts. Don't believe me? Let's go to Matthew 28 right now. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew 28. Right there at the end of the chapter, these are the last recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. He's risen from the dead. He's now teaching his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And these are the words that he chooses to leave them with. And if you look carefully, the words of Christ do not start in verse 19 with go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It starts in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am on the throne high and lifted up. Even if you, we don't have time to look at all of it, but if you would go look at John chapter 12, verse 41, the Apostle John quotes Isaiah chapter six. And he says that what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter six is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's how the Great Commission starts. We go because he reigns, because he is the king, because he is high and lifted up. So if we all want to say, here I am, send me, we need to heighten our awe for the king. Let's go back to Isaiah 6, and I want us to look now at the second section of our passage. And if you're taking notes there in a little bit. But there's another thing. If you really have this heightened view of God, it's going to leave you to leads you to an inevitable conclusion. And that's what happens with the prophet Isaiah here. And that conclusion is simply this. I have a big problem. Look at what Isaiah says in chapter five, or verse five. He says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe. That's a strong word in the Bible from revelation to the mouth of Jesus, back to the prophets. It's a message of judgment. And even in Isaiah chapter five, six times the prophet Isaiah says, woe to the people of Israel, pronouncing judgment upon them for their sin. But after a vision of God, he's not saying woe to the people of Israel. He's saying, woe is me. I am lost. Or some translations say, I am done idea of, I'm, I, I want to disintegrate. I wish I could just disappear. I'm finished. This is the conclusion that Isaiah comes to. If you think about television in our day and age, I mean, we've got how many hundreds of, of channels out there, and disappointing at how little there is really out there that's worth watching. Uh, but one of those things that generally is worth watching, a great week of television that rolls around every summer thanks to the Discovery Channel is the week Shark Week. I hope we got some Shark Week fans out there, Uh, multiple shows every night just focusing on sharks, but not all Shark Week shows are created equal. The best Shark Week shows are the ones that focus in on what is, in my humble opinion, the most majestic and glorious of all of the creatures God created, and that is the great white shark. And that's why the best Shark Week programming of all time started in 2001 with the program Air Jaws. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, that sounds like some cheesy, made-for-TV movie with really bad special effects and no plotline whatsoever. Uh, That'd be a fair Uh, Judgment to make, but that's not what this is. This is actually a documentary, an hour-long documentary, about the habits of great white sharks down just off the coast of Cape Town in South Africa. Because just off the coast, you've got this uh, group of rocks that comes out of the ocean that's known as Seal Island. It's called that because up to 60,000 seals in the wintertime will, will flock to this island. But as the seals come and go from this island, they have to swim over a stretch of deep ocean water. And guess what's down there in that deep ocean water? Great white sharks. And what happens is the seals are kinda skipping across the top of the water, and the sharks, they're low, as low as they can go, and then they just come straight up as fast as they can swim, trying to get the seal. And the sharks, you'll have 20-foot great white sharks coming clear out of the water, trying to catch the seal, and then going crashing back In. And I remember watching that show and saying, wow, that's so cool to see these big sharks that you think of as kind of slow moving around the ocean, swimming so fast, flying out of the water like a dolphin, trying to catch the seal. A couple years later, I had another experience where I actually got to see in real life a great white shark. This was back in 2005 when the Monterey Bay Aquarium was kind of experimenting with actually keeping a great white shark in captivity. At the aquarium, and I said, "Sign me up! I want to go see that." So I went to the aquarium, and if you've been there, it was in the open sea exhibit. That's the biggest exhibit they have there at the aquarium. They've got all kinds of fish. They got big uh, tuna fish. They've got sea turtles. They've got other kinds of sharks all swimming in there. But then there was, even though it was a juvenile, a great white shark. Everything else in there had kind of this cute Finding Nemo feel and then you had this one thing swimming around that you're like and that thing was made for one purpose hunting and killing other fish and seals and even physically even though it was a small for a great white it was like watching lebron james walk through a classroom of junior high students just this one creature clearly with more muscle and more strength and agility than everything else in there, and you stand there next to the glass watching this thing, and it moves a little bit from, wow, that's so cool, to a sense of, whoa, this is a creature to be feared, to a little bit of, whoa, that's that's awesome, truly awesome to behold. That's why one of my Things that I'd like to do in life is actually to get out there in the ocean and get into a cage to see a great white shark out for real. What a majestic sight. I mean, that'd be like a worship service right there. The whole earth is full of his glory. Look at this thing. One experience that I would never, ever, ever want to have is to be out there in the ocean swimming along or snorkeling or doing whatever and to run up against a rock or to scrape my foot and to be bleeding there in the ocean and then to look out and see a fin coming along and to see a great white shark headed straight for me when I'm bleeding in the ocean and to look around and not see any land close enough to swim to. There's no boat nearby. I'm hopeless. It'd be a a traumatic scene, a sense of despair. That's exactly how Isaiah feels right here In Isaiah chapter 6, he looks at God and he sees the most majestic thing that he's ever seen. And then he looks at himself and he sees the proverbial blood in the water and he realizes, oh no, I, I have a problem because I am unclean. Because God is holy and awesome and totally pure, and I am not. I am a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. That line gets an easy amen from us. We look at our culture, yeah, well, a people of unclean lips. But when you see God, what you understand is, I am so much closer to them than I am to God. I am a man of unclean lips. That's what he says when he sees God. Unfortunately, so many people have lost a high view of God and then have therefore lost a sense of the seriousness of sin. Because when you understand that God is the king, you understand sin for what it really is. It's divine treason. When we sin, what we're doing is we're looking at God, the one who created us, the one who's given us everything that we have, and you're saying, God, I don't really need you. And I know you say this is what I'm supposed to do, but I don't really wanna do that. God, you know what? I think I could do a better job at this king thing. Thing than you. So, God, why don't you scoot over or altogether? Why don't you just get off the throne? I think I would do just fine there. That's what sin is. There's no greater insolence in the universe than that. It is divine treason. And you might look at me and say, Wow, Pastor, did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? You see, it, 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 why are you so uptight about sin and the holiness of God? If you could see God, you would not. Say that. When you think about what Isaiah experienced here, it's guilt and shame to, to the most extreme degree. But I think we've all had experience with guilt and shame in our lives. I bet every person in this room, on some level, from small to big, has had some experience where you've been caught doing something that you weren't supposed to be doing. And you felt in that moment the uh oh, a sense of guilt. Even still, I bet everybody in this room has things that you've done in your life that you hope nobody else knows about. You've all got probably some deep, dark secrets that you hope never see the light of day. How would you feel if I started going around the room this morning and I said, hey, we got this guy right here. Why don't you go ahead and stand up? Hey, you guys want to know his deepest, darkest, most shameful secret? We've got video footage. Here it is. How would you feel in that moment? You'd say, I would like to disappear. I would like to go home now. Well, here's the thing. If that's how you would feel with all of that revealed before this room full of people, how do you think you're gonna feel when all of that is revealed when you're standing before God? Do you think he's not gonna know? Oh, he knows everything. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything you've ever thought. He knows everything you've ever said, even in the quiet of your own heart. Do you think he's not going to care do you think he's not going to do something about it maybe maybe you don't because that's where the tendency is to fall into that trap of thinking god is like me thinking "Ah, god will say it's not that big of a deal he'll understand god in scripture actually speaks to that exact thought you don't need to turn there but just listen to what it says in psalm chapter 50. god is calling out the people for their sin. And in Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, these things you have done, and I have been silent. God is saying, you're doing all these sinful things and I haven't just struck you down on the spot. I've held my peace, I've been patient. But then he says, you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart And there be none to deliver. God's made it clear. We're we're sinners, and you are not gonna get away with it. Now, if that's where this text ended, and that's where this sermon ended, this would be a pretty bad sermon. And we'd all leave here not feeling very good. But thankfully, that's not where the text ends. Let's even just look at the next two verses in this second section, second section of the text, verses six and seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Even when Isaiah realizes what a great problem he has with God, God provides a solution. God sends this angel and he, he uses a coal for the cleansing of Isaiah. Well, God has provided a solution for you too through the cross of Jesus Christ. That the word became flesh. God sent his son into this world. He lived the perfect life and he was crucified. And Jesus Christ, the perfect, holy lamb of God, on the cross, bore the wrath of God for the sins of the world. God has provided that solution. And he's made it very clear how we're supposed to respond to that through repentance and faith, through turning away from our sins, saying, God, you are right. I am unclean. And I live amongst an unclean people. And I'm sorry. And I confess that to you. And I turn away from that. And I call out to you to save me and I call out to you to lead me. Have you been made right with God? You are gonna stand before God someday. Are you ready for that moment? Because without Christ, you have a big problem. But in Christ, we have a wonderful solution. And I know that many of you have put your trust in Christ. And I would hope that as we think about this text today, even that we would have a sense that, wow, my sin is actually a bigger deal than I realized it was. And that then we wouldn't leave here today with, oh man, I feel so much more guilty for all these things that I've done. But then we leave here today feeling so much more grateful that even though my sin is a bigger deal than I thought it was, it's atoned for. My guilt is taken away because of what Jesus has done for me. Point number two, now I'll I'll give it to you. You need to deepen your gratitude for forgiveness. Deepen your gratitude for forgiveness. A lot of people today think that if they try to make God a little more soft around the edges, uh, that'll sell better. People will be more into that. But the unfortunate reality is that unless you really see the holiness of God, you will never comprehend the depths of the love of God. And you will not have the proper sense of wonder that you should have, that God has forgiven you. When you really see God as holy, you will appreciate his love more than ever. And you'll read verses like Romans 5, 8 with a whole new sense of amazement when you read that. But God demonstrates his love for us. And even just with that, you would say, really? This holy God, even though I'm unclean, Even though I'm offensive to him, he loves me. And he he demonstrates that love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can these things be? And you understand why we sing songs with words like amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And when we have that deeper gratitude, again, there's a straight line from that to here I am, send me. Because now you know who God is. You know how serious the problem of sin is. And you also know how incredible the solution of the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And so you go from saying, woe is me, I'm finished, to saying what the apostle Paul said, a man who understood his own forgiveness and how great that was when he says things like this in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Now that I know all of this, let there be judgment on me if I don't make it my business to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And that leads us then to our third section of Psalm. Or sorry, of Isaiah chapter 6. And that's just going to be verse 8. Verse eight says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Even that phrase, here I am, usually we think of that as an indication of location. Hey, where are you? Here I am, I'm over here. Not what Isaiah was doing. God knew exactly where Isaiah was. So maybe some of the Older English translations actually give us a good idea. Maybe you're more familiar with this verse being translated, here am I. That Isaiah is not indicating his location. He is offering himself up to do whatever God wants. That's what all of us need to do. Point number three this weekend, offer up your life to proclaim God's glory. Offer up your life to proclaim God's glory. Now that we have been saved, this is our mission. And even uh, this is what God says that part of the reason why he saved us, consider what it says in First Peter chapter 2 verse 9. It says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light even that's a beautiful depiction of of what we consider in isaiah 6 that god on this throne in a temple filled with glory and shaking and smoke what he has now done through jesus christ is saying hey come on in you are invited into my presence what the book of hebrews talks about how it used to be just the high priest once a day entering into the holy of holies on the day of atonement but now christ has entered the holy of holies not with the blood of animals but with his own blood and the veil has been torn and we as believers are welcomed in to the presence of this holy god And God's now saying, I've done this so now you could go tell everyone how great your God is. This one who's called you out of uncleanness and shame and guilt and welcomed you into his presence. We need to offer up our lives to that. And I wanna be real specific. Well, what does that look like to do that? And I wanna give you three things that every Christian that is saying, here I am, send me, should be actively engaged in. And the first one is personal evangelism. Every single one of us should be actively seeking to tell other people the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to our illustration from earlier. You're on the boat now, you're safe, but you look out into the water and there's your neighbors, there's your coworkers, there's your family, there's your friends there's your barista, there's all the people around you. They're still in the water and they're bleeding and the sharks are still circling. Shouldn't you be, hey, do we got a buoy we can throw to these people? Can I extend my arm out and try to pull them on to this boat? And as we do that, there should not even be a hint of pride about us. We shouldn't be looking out, what are they doing swimming in the water? Shouldn't they know that there's sharks out there? No, because that's exactly where we were before God pulled us out and put us safely into the boat. Now we should have a heart of compassion for the lost people around us. And every single one of us should daily be praying, God, open up doors for me to share the gospel with others. And we should be actively looking for those doors where we might bring the hope of the gospel and the message of forgiveness to other people. Every one of us should be engaged in personal evangelism. We also, every single one of us should be engaged in church ministry, church ministry. Serving God, saying, here I am, send me. It's not a solo sport. God has called you to be a part of a team. And even that question, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? In the New Testament, is made clear, the church. That is God's plan for the evangelization of the world. It is the local church. But here's the reality. The church needs you. Now you might say, well, hey, weren't you talking about this high view of God? He sits on the throne. He does whatever he wants. Doesn't really sound like he needs me, pastor. Well, that's what we call using a biblical truth in an unbiblical way. Because you're you're right, God doesn't need you. He could send seraphim all over the world to proclaim the gospel of, of Jesus Christ if he wanted to but he has chosen to use you. And even especially because you alone can proclaim that excellency of I was in the darkness, now I've been welcomed into the light. And he calls the church, he describes it as a body, and he says every single Christian has been given a gift to serve the body. And I don't know about you, but I view all the parts of my body as indispensable. I say I I need them. I mean, just think if you were to have woken up this morning and your left arm was not working, I doubt you would have, you know, greeted that fact passively by saying, Huh, left arm doesn't seem to be moving today. Well, I still got a few other appendages and a lot I can do with my body, so let's go out and get after it today. <laughs> no, you would have said, My left arm isn't working. Nine, well, I can't use that. 911. I have an emergency. I require immediate medical attention because I need my left arm to be working. The church needs every part of the body doing its part. And there's always opportunities, even at our church, for people to step up and to serve. And really, now's a unique time in our church where there's even more need than ever as we are sending out several families. They're moving 900 miles to idaho to start a new church you know what those families aren't going to be doing anymore serving at compass bible church aliso viejo and i've got a front row seat to this a couple times i took over our young adults ministry for pastor bobby when he left to plant compass huntington beach i took over thrive our young marrieds ministry for pastor elliot when he went to go plant compass tustin and There were huge holes in both of those ministries from the people that had left to also go be a part of those church planting teams. But one of the greatest joys in nine years of working at this church was seeing people say, hey, I'll stand up, I'll fill the void. I've never done this before, but hey, serve college age people, I'll do that. If you train me, if you tell me what to do, here I am, send me. Oh, we've got a greater need over here, I'll, I'll do it. Now there's opportunities for you. Who's gonna step up? Who's gonna fill the void? I know that they're always happening in our church, but even I've had conversations with the college ministry, knowing that there's voids there. I was talking to somebody that's moving to Idaho with us talking about how they're praying for God to bring somebody to replace what they were doing with the kids' ministry here at our church. And I've been praying that even as a result of this sermon, some of you, maybe who even are new to our church, would say, it's time to get in the game. I'll step up. Where where am I needed? I'll I'll serve. Every one of us should be involved in church ministry, personal evangelism, church ministry. A third thing we should all be actively seeking to engage in is global missions, global missions. Now, if you think about it, if you are engaged in evangelism, as I do that, one of the frequent kind of scenarios that'll come up in conversation is the person I'm talking to will be, okay, Jesus is the only way to get saved. So what about that good guy out there deep in the rainforest that's never heard about Jesus? Are you telling me that if he doesn't hear about Jesus and put his trust in Jesus, he's going to be judged by God? Now let's step back and even think, What we've already talked about in this sermon should reveal a problem with that scenario. That scenario is a myth. It doesn't exist. There is no good guy out there deep in the rainforest. There are only sinners out there, unclean people who live amongst other unclean people that have said, we are gonna be the king. We are gonna live our own lives how we want to live. That's the only kind of people that are out there. But even as we come across that thing in that that situation and conversation, we as Christians should honestly be able to say, yes, I know there's people out there like that. And that's why I'm doing something along with my church is doing something to reach people just like that, to give them the good news of Jesus Christ. And I would hope that you could say, if I ran into you on the patio, you could say there's some way you're actively engaging in supporting what God is doing all over the world. Even just one way you can do that is through financial support. And if you give to this church, that's what we use to help support all the missionaries that we are trying to see do work all over the world. Even if you go out on the patio after the service, the last easy up there, you're gonna see prayer cards for every missionary our church supports. You could actively be praying and seeking updates and praying for these people that are out there trying to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. You could say, STM Guatemala, I'm in, Let, let's go. Maybe I can go there in person to support what God is doing. But we shouldn't think, oh yeah, there's some people out there that care about global missions. No, we all should think that way. The whole earth is full of his glory. We should desire to see the whole earth reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Offer up your life to proclaim God's glory, personal evangelism, church ministry, global missions. Now we get to the final section in Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 13. Let me read those for us. And what you're gonna, a a little preview, it's not the most uplifting section to end this chapter with. Look at it as I read. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. What God tells Isaiah here is, hey, you said, here I am, send me. It's going to be tough. This task that you have, it's not going to be easy. And the same is true for us. If we really say, here I am, send me. God, I'll do whatever you need, anytime, place, anything, that's not an easy task. What's gonna motivate you to do that, to press on? It's this vision of this holy God that we have seen. Point number four, as we conclude this morning, press on amidst a hostile culture. Press on amidst a hostile culture. And I hope you understand that the world will always be opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world doesn't like a message of a holy God because they don't want to admit that they are unclean. That's never going to be popular. And our culture is getting increasingly hostile. And I can prove that to you if you want me to open up the newspaper for you, or I can just show that to you by opening up the Bible where it says in the end times, it's gonna get worse. People are gonna go from bad to worse. That's God's forecast for the future when it comes to persecution and people being opposed to the gospel. Even we already talked about this view of God as holy and high and exalted, it's not very popular. There's pastors of huge churches that are embarrassed by what the Bible says about God. Or just this idea that Jesus is the only way, that's not going to fly in today's culture where hey, whatever floats your boat, that's that's good for you. That's not going to work or even just if you are committed to the sexual ethics of the Bible, you are gonna be increasingly cast out in our society. But if you see God on the throne as holy, you're gonna press on and you're gonna do so courageously. Even look, the message that God gives to Isaiah to to bring to the people is a message of judgment. And God is gonna use you to bring a message to people that should bring about conviction, It's more than just, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because even as we've already seen, how are they gonna grasp the love of God unless they get a sense of the problem that they have before God? God's gonna use you to help bring that news to people. One thing that might be helpful to do to follow up from this message is to go back online and find the messages from the Equipped Conference that we had earlier this year that was all about personal evangelism. One of our guests, speakers that weekend, Ray Comfort, in his message, talked about how lots of times evangelism becomes a scientific or theological or philosophical debate. And what you want to do is get away from that. And what he said was, go for their conscience. That's what Jesus did. And that's going to take courage to do that, where you move away from that and you just keep people bringing back to, you know that you're a sinner. You know that you're going to stand before God some day. Be courageous. That's what people need to hear. And also, press on tirelessly. Isaiah asks, okay, God, how long do you want me to bring this message to judgment? And God says, until judgment comes. And gives the idea, not a lot of people are gonna respond and listen to you. And I'd love to say, hey, if we do this, if we have this high view of God and this high view of the gospel and we go, revival's gonna break out left and right. I hope so. I, we should all pray for that. And certainly there's seasons we can see in history that God has done that. But there's also a lot of seasons in history that people were just faithfully doing what God asked them to do and you've never even heard of these people, but you'll meet them in heaven. W- what's gonna keep you pressing on w- when the work is hard? If you're in it for the accolades and the praise of other people or you're in it for all the results, you might not last very long. But if you're in it because you see the Lord on the throne high and lifted up, you'll keep going, no matter what the culture puts up against you. But we should see even some hope at the end of this passage. It's not completely hopeless. If you look there at the end of verse 13, when it talked about this stump, the holy seed is its stump. Well, what's that talking about? Well, any of the commentaries are gonna tell you that this stump is referring to some kind of remnant within the people of Israel that are gonna remain faithful to God and that God is gonna remain faithful to protect and help them. That judgment is never the final word for the people of Israel in the Bible. Like God always still has that future plan for them. That we should look out at our culture and be, yeah, times are tough and they're going to get tougher. But you know what? There still are people out there that God is going to to save. And as long as Christ hasn't returned, we know that's why he is patiently waiting for more people to respond to him in repentance and faith. So we should have a sense of optimism that as long as we're here, God is going to keep working. God still has people out there that he's going to save. Let's go get them. Let's press on courageously, tirelessly, optimistically. Earlier in the service, you guys sang the song, "Rock of Ages." I want you to think about what you said there in that fourth and final verse. He said, "While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes will close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne." What does he go on to say next? When he sees God on the throne, he says, "I need a place to hide." When I see God in his glory, even the older versions of the song say, and behold, on thy judgment throne. When I see that, I need a place to hide. But the great part about that hymn is it tells us where that place is, in the rock of ages. Jesus Christ, that was cleft for us, that his blood is where we are forgiven for our sin. Have you hidden yourself in the rock of ages? this morning. And if you haven't, you have a big problem with God, but that problem can be fixed right now in this moment, if you turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. And when I get to that day to see God on his judgment throne, I don't want to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. But because of what Christ has done for me, I'm confident that I won't. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the words that I want to hear and the words that I want you to hear and the words that I want Compass Aliso to hear and the words I want Compass Treasure Valley to hear is well done, good and faithful servant. That we would be a church of people who see God for who he is, see the gospel for how amazing it is and then respond by giving our lives faithfully to serve the Lord. And my family's moving at the end of the month, but we don't need to get too emotional or sappy about this. I'm confident I'm gonna see you all again. I'll be back. Plan some future summer vacations to Boise, Idaho. We would love to see you up there. But the reunion that I'm most looking forward to is that day when our work will be done, when we will be in heaven. And even all that we talked about, that scene of this majestic God, Revelation describes on that day, God is gonna dwell among us. His glory is going to be our light. I look forward to that day when our work will be done and we will join in the song singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. God, we do praise you and we come before you humbly. God, we come before you knowing that on our own, we have no right to approach you God, that our sin is offensive to you. But God, we praise you for the glory of the gospel that our sins, which are many, our sins which are red like crimson can be washed white as snow because of what Jesus has done for us. Pray that everybody in this room is right with God through what Jesus Christ has done. And I pray that you would fill us with the desire God, to say, here I am, send me, that we would all throw ourselves into the work of serving the God who has called us out of the darkness and brought us in to his glorious light. God, and I pray that there'll be ripple effects even of our time here this morning as people are more faithful to serve and we see that affect countless lives in the future. God, the whole earth is full of your glory and we ask that you would be exalted through us. And we pray this all in the great name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed.